This is a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Florence on the Machine, Shake It Out. You're on In Your Face on 3CR with James. On today's show, Invisible Boys author Holden Shepherd joins us. We also speak with Jane Green from Vixen Collective about the Victorian government's inquiry into sex work. And at 4.30, QR code explores queer conversion practices and ideology with survivors' perspectives. You're listening to 3CR Radio. Well, Holden Shepherd is the author of Invisible Boys, that explores masculinity, homosexuality, mental health and suicide set in rural Western Australia. And Holden Shepherd joins us on the line. Holden, welcome to 3CR. G'day, James. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's great to have you on board. Uh, it's a great book. It's won three awards at least. How much of it is based on your own personal experiences? Look, that's a really uh, a frequent question because uh, a lot of this stuff is drawn from my own experiences growing up gay as a kid in, in Geraldton, which is in the Midwest of WA. A lot of the, the emotional truth of what I went through, the trauma and the, the feelings of isolation being, being a homo in, in Gero, as I like to say, it was, was channeled into this book. So that kind of stuff is pretty much true and very close to the bone. But I deliberately chose not to write memoir. I, I've couched this book in fiction, so I've, I've put it in three different characters' perspectives. So the emotional resonance of the book is very much your own experience. Yeah, so that that sense that the boys have of being uh, isolated, uh, of being of feeling like they're the only one going through this, that's how I felt. And that, that airlessness that kind of characterises a lot of the narrative, uh, that's how I felt when I was growing up. You know, I really felt like I couldn't breathe in a small town and, and that I couldn't tell anyone what I was going through. So I've channeled that part into the book and that, that part is certainly true to life. So tell us about the boys in the book. Yeah, so I've uh, I've divided uh, this experience into three different boys. So I've got Zeke, Charlie and Hammer, all really different 16-year-old boys. Uh, Zeke is the nerd. He's very shy. He's Catholic. He's Italian. So he's got kind of cultural and religious pressures on him and he's trying to kind of work out, you know, is it okay to be gay and, and you know, what does it mean morally if he's gay and is there any moral component or is it just, you know, part of human nature? Charlie's the punk. Charlie's trying to work out, you know, he, he's rebellious and he's already having sex with men and he's happy with that and he doesn't really get phased by it. But uh, when he's outed at the very beginning of the book, uh, that sets off a chain reaction for him in terms of people's perceptions of him and that's what he has to deal with. Um, and then we've got Hammer, who's our classic footy jock, destined for AFL glory, and he's absolutely convinced he's straight, 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 straight. But he's uh, most certainly not straight. So which of the of the boys do you identify with the most? I actually... I actually identify with all three, to be honest. I, I'm a little bit of Zeke. I'm a total geek. I mean, I'm a writer for starters, so that makes me a geek, right? Um, but uh, I, I'm like Charlie as well, so I, I love punk. I love playing guitar. I, I've always been a bit a bit of a rebel. Uh, and I'm a bit of Hammer as well. I play footy for a gay team over here in Perth, um, the, the Perth Hornets, and I, I, I'm a total gym junkie. So I kind of identify with all three boys, and they're all parts of me, to be honest. I don't think I could choose one over the other. 
You tackled some confronting issues, especially suicide. What does Invisible Boys tell us about the links between homophobia and suicide? Yeah, I think I think the big thing with this book is not that it's a story of being picked on for being gay or being directly discriminated against or prejudiced against. My experience growing up and the experience that a lot of these boys in the book go through is that you actually internalise a lot of this homophobia culturally and socially so as you're growing up you kind of learn that being gay is not a good thing and certainly for me growing up in you know a blue collar environment I used to be a a labourer with my dad in earth moving you grow up in that kind of environment a small town and you're Catholic and you're Italian very traditional Uh, you don't have a lot of messaging saying it's okay to be gay so even if people aren't actually directly uh, firing homophobic stuff at you because you, they don't know you're gay, they think you're straight, and I passed as straight, and that was how it was, you can still internalise the message that being gay is bad, and therefore you'd start to go, go into a space of total self-loathing and, and denial of your sexuality and denial of yourself. And you do that long enough, and eventually you don't want to be on the planet anymore. And certainly that's how I felt. You mentioned internalised homophobia. What does the book tell us about the toxic masculinity that revolves around that? Yeah, I mean, I personally don't use the term toxic masculinity uh, myself, but you know, certainly I, I know it's being referred to with that. And there's that stoicism and that traditional, um, you know, that traditional masculinity that we've grown up with, where you don't talk about your feelings, you don't uh, show any vulnerability in terms of emotions or struggle. And uh, I think that's actually what's killing a lot of us. I think it's killing uh, a lot of LGBT people. I think it's killing a lot of gay men. I think it's killing a lot of straight men as well. Um, and our suicide rates are, you know, if you look at them, they're, they're catastrophic in a lot of ways. Just if you look at male suicide rates alone compared to female, it's triple the rate. But if you factor in being a gay or bi man or being a trans man, those statistics edge up to really catastrophic levels. So uh, we know that trying to, you know, suppress how you feel or deal with stuff on your own doesn't actually uh, serve us very well. And, and what, what I think we need is a lot more male vulnerability um, to help us overcome this. You said you don't use the term toxic masculinity. Do you think it's a a negative term that perhaps causes more trouble than it explains? Uh, Yeah, I do. And that's that's part of why I don't use it. I think... Uh, I think if the messaging, if, I think if the wording you're using is negatively affecting the people you're talking about, then you've got a responsibility to actually respond to that feedback and, and you know, try to find more precise language that is not harmful or putting people offside. And, if, and I know that you know, a lot of people hear the term toxic masculinity, especially men, especially straight men, and they go, well, you're attacking men and, you know, they're going to switch off. So they're not going to hear your message about male vulnerability. So um, if someone feels attacked by your message, they're not going to listen to you. And I don't think we should be attacked anyone. So that, that's, that's my general response to that. Tell us about the emotional vulnerability that comes out in the book. Yeah, I think that was a real challenge for me to do. Um, as an artist, I had always tried to protect myself to some extent. And what I did with this book was actually I kind of let everything hang out. And uh, I, I'm just letting people judge me and my characters for who they are. So they're really flawed characters. And I think that's kind of come through in a lot of reviews, which is something I'm proud of. These are not pure uh, gay characters. They're not victims of uh, a harsh world necessarily. Sometimes they're victims. Sometimes they're the perpetrators. Sometimes they're really well behaved. Sometimes they're terribly behaved. Um, And that reflects, I think, what all of us are like as human beings. So uh, I tried to be vulnerable in terms of showing my emotions, in terms of uh, being sad, being angry and, and being happy and all these things being part of the human experience. Um, I think in particular with this book, because it shows, you know, what it's like to grow up as a gay teenager. Uh, I wanted to show, you know, what it's like to feel to feel lust and desire for men, to feel embarrassed and awkward about those desires and, and trying to work out who you are in the world. 
so that was what I tried to put on the page. And, you know, that sense of, you know, am I a man enough if I'm homosexual? Can I still be manly and homosexual at the same time? Those are things I really wanted to ask with this book. You mentioned bad behaviour. Give us an anecdote about the worst behaviour from the characters in the book. <laughs> That's a great question. I, I mean, I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot of dodgy behaviour. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pin it on Hammer only because... He's the he's the larrikin footy jock, and a lot of the stuff he does is fun and funny, and a lot of it is also kind of hurtful to some of the characters. So, I mean, he, he gives Zeke a really hard time, uh, for example, for having man boobs, right? Like, Zeke's going through puberty and he's got man boobs. So, so Hammer is, like, relentless in, you know, uh, shaming him for that. But I also think, you know, more broadly, Hammer is, you know, fairly homophobic in his language. And I don't try to kind of call him out on it in the book because I don't believe it's the role of art to, to just call out you know, itself. I think it's meant to reflect how the world is. And I know a lot of hammers and I've been a hammer and uh, sometimes that happens. And what I want to show is that, you know, this kid, okay, on one hand, he's a bit of a moron. Uh, but on the other hand, he's a really scared 16-year-old boy who doesn't know what to do with the fact that being gay makes him feel like he can't be a footy player and that jeopardises his identity. So he's really scared. So no, he shouldn't be behaving badly, but yeah, it's part of the human experience that sometimes we do behave badly. Do the characters in the book know that the others are gay or are they isolated from each other in that way? Um, it starts out, so the novel starts out with them all completely isolated and completely in the closet. So you've got Zeke, Charlie, Hammer, all three of them having just completely separate storylines. But they start to interweave very quickly after Charlie is outed at the beginning. Uh, because it's a small town, if you, you know, if you come out in a small town, it becomes the talk of the town, everyone talks about it. So suddenly that triggers certain things to unravel for Zeke and for Hammer. So as the novel moves towards its mid, you know, the, the second third, the second uh, arc, the boys actually start to come into each other's lives and, and find some level of uh, compassion and they kind of see each other and they kind of lean on each other a little bit in a really kind of fragile, awkward, you know, clumsy way, but they start to support each other a bit for a time. Um, my very favourite scene in the whole book is uh, when they're all sitting on the roof uh, in Chapter 16. It's just absolutely transcendent for me. Wow. So tell us a bit more about that. Why was it so transcendent for you? Um, I think that that particular scene, I mean, when I was writing the novel, I I had my outline there and I was sitting there going, I can't wait for chapter 16. I, na I Like, I have to get to this chapter because it was the scene where the boys uh, are drinking and they're just talking about the, the boys that they like, the guys they find hot, uh, their experiences with things like masturbation and porn and sex and love. And these are things that I used to talk about with my mates when I was a teenager, but my mates were all straight. So I would just play along and talk about, you know, talk about chicks and that's what you do. But uh, I, I thought, wouldn't it have been nice to be a teenager and actually be able to talk freely with your mates about what you're into? And so writing that chapter was kind of me reimagining, rediscovering, rewriting uh, what my teenage years could have been. So it's been remarkably therapeutic by the sounds of writing this book. Yeah, it has actually. It's, it's wildly cathartic. And I mean, that's one of the reasons I wrote the book was to kind of help me process my own trauma. And I came out the other side just feeling absolutely amazing, to be honest, because I felt like I'd, I'd written a version of what life could have been like. And I, I've written myself into existence in a way, which sounds a bit odd, but um, that's certainly how it feels. It sounds like a really validating exercise. Yeah, that's right. I think I, as well, I, I come from, you know, probably not a particularly uh, sensitive 
kind of cultural or familial background where we talk about our feelings extensively. So to be able to actually write about it and and have those feelings validated, and certainly now with the book doing so well and people responding to it uh, en masse in such an uh, an emotional and intense and engaged way, it's really validating because I feel like uh, I'm not the only person who went through this. In fact, lots and lots and lots of people have messaged me saying this is this is a version of their own life on the page and they're so glad to finally see it. So that's pretty cool. What's the reaction in Geraldton been like and have you been surprised by the reaction? The reaction in Geraldton has actually been really positive. I returned there about four weeks ago and did an author talk at the library there and it sold out, which was fantastic. So there's actually, you know, in a, in a country town, there is an appetite for a gay author to come and talk about gay issues and this kind of book. People were really receptive to the story, to my story, but also to the book itself. People are very open to it. So I think, you know, the towns are changing. And even though our regional and rural areas are, you know, often uh, they lag behind in some ways in terms of attitudes and things. Uh, there are a lot of people who are champions for, for inclusion for LGBT people, which is really cool. So the reaction has been really good. And I think as well, because I've dropped in a lot of kind of references to the town, I think people really respond to that. So a local audience can kind of read this book and really visualise, you know, where all the scenes are taking place. And they quite appreciate that. Has there been a reaction from the Western Australian government to your book or any of the Western Australian MPs? Are you seeing some results in so far as how LGBTIQ issues are being resourced and and supported by the government in WA as a result of Invisible Boys? Um, I I don't know if MPs are having a huge reaction in terms of policy, but I do know that my book was recently mentioned at, uh, there was a Pride event uh, at the WA Parliament uh, a few weeks ago, and I had a message from a bookseller who was there and said, we were just chatting to, uh, I think it was a Nationals MP, in fact, um, who said, you know, we need more books like Holden's and we need all the Holden's out there to know that they're okay and they're supported. And I thought, that's amazing. You know, I mean, that's an amazing reaction to have. So uh, hopefully there's more of that. It's just very cool to know that people in that kind of, uh, that sphere have even heard of my novel. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Invisible Boy seems like a perfect adaptation for TV or a film. Is there anything in the wings you can talk about? There is nothing in the wings I can talk about. I think that's the way I have to answer that question at this stage. Um, But I'm certainly hopeful um, that there would be some kind of adaptation ahead. And I would love to see it on the screen. I think it would be a perfect kind of, uh, you know, Aussie gay, you know, film or TV show, however it kind of pans out. I feel like audiences would really respond to it. It's very Aussie as well. So I think it's kind of, it's broad enough to appeal to a bigger audience. And I think it would be an important thing to have available. So so fingers crossed, but um, as you can probably tell from my caginess, I can't really talk right now about that. <laughs> of course, WA has a history of great novelists. Uh, has Tim Winton read your book as far as you know? Have you, have you met him? Has he reacted? Like, yeah, what's his response been? Wow, I wish I knew. Uh, I know that I had a review, there was a review in Books and Publishing, which is the trade magazine for the book industry, and the reviewer compared my writing to Tim Winton, which I thought was really cool. Uh, I know his brother has actually read it. So his brother reached out, Tim Winton's brother reached out to me on Facebook and said, I've read your book and it's amazing, I'm going to pass it on to Tim. I don't know if that has resulted in Tim Winton actually reading it. So uh, I would love to know, though, because he is, you know, an absolute icon and an incredibly prolific and 
powerful writer. So, you know, if he said if he said my writing was great, I think I'd kind of have a little fanboy moment, to be honest. Holden, it's been an absolute joy chatting with you today. Congratulations on Invisible Boys. It's a great novel and I uh, can't wait for the next one. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me, James. Appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. And that was Holden Shepherd talking about Invisible Boys. If this discussion has caused you distress, you can ring Lifeline on 13 11 14 or Q Life on 1800 184 527. Up next, Jane Green. In the meantime, though, here are the breeders. In Your Face would like to thank Thorn Harbour Health for their financial support of this program. Thorn Harbour Health envisions a healthy future for our gender, sex and sexuality diverse communities. A future without HIV and a future where all people live with dignity and respect. To find out more about them, search Thorn Harbour Health on your search engine or find them on Facebook. Jane Green from Vixen Collective joins us in the studio. Jane, it's been a huge week for sex workers. Yeah, it has a bit. It's all a bit of an uh, exciting blur, uh, I have to say. Um, certainly the Northern Territory uh, decriminalising sex work is a massive event, not just for the Northern Territory or even for Australian sex workers, but internationally. Um, it's been tremendously exciting. And then, of course, we had the announcement of the inquiry into sex work laws in Victoria. Are you happy with the uh, inquiry? Are you happy with its terms of reference? Look, I think we're certainly happy that we've got the inquiry, and the inquiry is based on the Labor Party policy, which is for the full decriminalisation of sex work. The terms of reference, certainly we've had a lot of feedback from community, and community are intensely interested, um, which is good. Uh, I think it's not unusual to have a high level of interest because sex workers have been campaigning for decades very strongly for the full decriminalisation of our work here in Victoria. We've had a lot of feedback from Victorian workers on the terms um, and workers strongly feel that the terms should include all workers and all forms of work and I think perhaps there's some concern that it isn't clear in the terms that they do um, and I also we've had some strong feedback today that the terms of reference emphasise the New Zealand model of decriminalisation um, and the terms do state that the New Zealand model is quote, largely preferred by decriminalisation advocates. That's simply not true. The New Zealand model has significant flaws that we do not want to see adopted in Victoria. So I think that's obviously of concern to our community and also of concern to sex workers, uh, peer representative organisations, that such a significant misrepresentation has been made by government. So it sounds like the government didn't consult with Vixen Collective about the uh, terms of the inquiry. Did they consult Scarlet Alliance? Certainly in terms of making that sort of statement, they can't have. My uh, my counterpart, Jules Kim, is actually out of the country at the moment, but they can't have to make that sort of statement. Sex workers' peer representative organisations are very strongly known for advocating for the full decriminalisation of our work and decriminalisation in both New Zealand and New South Wales is not full decriminalisation. Uh, the New Zealand model, unfortunately, criminalises the work of migrant workers, which is a fatal flaw. I mean, certainly decriminalisation is is better than what we have here. But what we want here is the full decriminalisation of our work and we can't leave the most marginalised of our community behind in doing that. It's not right. We all need to go over the line together. 
um, and disadvantaging migrant workers or disadvantaging street-based workers or any of our community is not appropriate. And certainly the New South Wales model of decriminalisation disadvantages street-based workers. We're not going to do that here. We're not going to allow it. The most marginalised in our community come with us. When we improve our rights, we need to improve the rights of all members of our community. So have sex worker peer organisations been a bit blindsided by the government? Uh, Did they give you a heads up this inquiry was happening or did you just hear about it in the media like the rest of us? Well, I I think we certainly knew that that we had forward momentum and certainly Vixen Collective worked very closely with members of the Labor Party to put the full decriminalisation of sex work on the policy platform and that work took years I know because I was personally involved in that. It was about four and a half years to get it on the platform. Um, and certainly in the year since that it went on the platform, actually a year and a half since it went on the platform, um, we've certainly kept in close contact and pushed very strongly that action should be taken, that it's not enough for it to sit there on the policy platform, but the parliamentary party needs to take action. So there's a bit of a gulf between how the, the party has responded to sex workers and the government. Well, I think there's always a need for very close um, work in partnership with sex workers peer representative organisations and perhaps that slipped a little at the last post. Um, Certainly it was a bit of a surprise to me on Tuesday night I think it was that ABC Radio actually rang and read me the press release while seeking comment and I perhaps was a bit surprised by that so um, but I certainly had conversations with members of government on Wednesday morning uh, prior to the, um, the media release going out. But I think the thing that I would emphasise going forward is if the work is not done by government in partnership with the peer representative bodies of our community, then the work will not go well. And that's to the detriment of our community. And what we need to do in bringing full decriminalisation to fruition is to do that work in partnership because it's about the rights, health and safety of our community and we need to do it right. The inquiry will be chaired by Upper House MP Fiona Patton. Uh, She does have links to the EROS Foundation, which of course is an industry organisation for the adult industry. Is that a potential conflict of interest? Look, I'd say the terms of reference do make statements about stakeholders. The most important stakeholder in this process is workers, Victorian sex workers, and we need to be centred in the process. Again, if we're not, that's when it all goes wrong. Policy, and look, there's history of this, policy that's not based on the needs of workers as the affected community is bad policy. And we can't have more bad policy. That's what we've had. We don't need it anymore. We need policy that's based on good outcomes for sex workers. And government knows that. Uh, They've clearly been told that. Uh, And if we're going to move forward and do something that's right for community, We need to do that in partnership with the people whose interests need to be put first, and that's clearly sex workers. It seems this inquiry is a pathway to the decriminalisation of sex work in Victoria, and we've seen uh, sex work decriminalised in the Northern Territory. If Victoria does decriminalise sex work, should it be based on the Northern Territory model? Um, Well, I mean, I think it's very clear that the inquiry we have here isn't about whether or not we're decriminalising sex work. The full decriminalisation of sex work is Labor Party policy. The inquiry is about how and when we do that. Um, In terms of the Northern Territory model, again, unfortunately, at the last minute, some unfortunate features were slipped in um, around advertising and uh, around actually um, 
some features of licensing from the New Zealand model. I think we just, again, be very firm. What we want is the full decriminalisation of our work. And for people that aren't clear about what that is, it's not anything special or different. What we want is to be treated like other workers, to have the same rights as other workers. That's not a you know weird or strange thing. We just want what everyone else has got, a fair deal. It's a common sense, it's pastime, and we need to do it now. Will Vixen be working with the union movement in responding to this inquiry and, and you know, being activists around it? Will there be some camaraderie happening? We've already been working with the union movement. Um, and look, we're in a lot of spaces working with a lot of people. Um, we have a lot of allies, and but we always need more. I'd strongly encourage people, if you're not already involved in our campaign, go to our website, look up our contact details. Uh, there's a page on our website called Decrim Now that outlines the case for decriminalisation. Read it. It's got a list of organisations in Victoria and also at a national and international level that support the full decriminalisation of sex work. If the name of your organisation isn't on there, it should be. Contact us and get your name there. What activism can we expect from Vixen in the coming months in 2020? Everything. Everything. (laughs) Absolutely everything. Uh, Look, protests, actions, sign-ons, sex workers speaking everywhere. If you want us to come out to your event and speak, to your club, and anything that's going on on media, we will be there. We will be doing it. Come, listen. You should listen. We're the people you should be listening to. Finally, Jill Hennessy, the Attorney-General, did make a commitment to meet with sex workers, to meet with Vixen. Has she done that? Not yet, but we're willing and able, and we'll be looking forward to doing that as soon as we can. What about Jenny McCarkos, the Health Minister? Has she reached out at all? Has she softened her position in some ways in so far as meeting with Vixen is concerned? Unfortunately, no. It's disappointing. It is, but look, we will keep on trying there. Um, We certainly actually have met with some members of parliament recently. Um, I've got a check sheet to try and meet with every member of parliament in the next six months. So, Who's on the top of the list? Oh, that's a hard one. Like... um, I, I have a certain sort of special place in my heart for meeting with members of parliament that might be less inclined to support us because I do like a challenge. But look, I'll keep com- keep coming back and keeping you posted on how many people I have left to go. Jane Graham's always great to talk to you. Thanks so much for popping into 3CR today. Always a pleasure. We are out of here. QR code is up next. You're listening to 3CR Radio. QR Code, a queer health series exploring diverse and intersecting community issues. My name's James McKenzie. In this episode, we explore queer conversion practices and ideology. Please be aware, this episode includes discussions about homophobia, transphobia, violence and suicide, and may distress some listeners. My name's Nathan Despot. I grew up in Melbourne, grew up in a Maltese Catholic family, and uh, when I was 18... Um, through some friends, I entered the evangelical Christian world as a young person, uh, then spent the next 10 years of my life in a conservative evangelical community or communities. And a large part of that was um, being part of the what was called, I guess, the ex-gay conversion movement or conversion practices. I think there's a lot of uh, misconceptions around conversion practices. Uh, 
Sometimes you'll hear the term gay conversion therapy. A lot of my advocacy work has been to change the language so that we don't say gay conversion therapy anymore because it's a bit of a, a misunderstanding and it conjures images of these very fetishized ideas of people seeing psychologists or psychiatrists or being part of group programs or electroshock therapy. And that's not really what happens. It hasn't really happened for a very long time, particularly in Australia. You hear of situations, you know, one or two here or there, um, but that's not really what I went through in my journey. And my journey was 2000 to 2010. So even back then, those things weren't very common. The way it started is the way it started for a lot of people that I know and a lot of people that Brave Network supports at the moment, which was conversations with pastors and, and ministers, I guess some people would call them, conversations with friends, conversations with the small groups or home groups or Bible study groups, depending on what people call them, with, with the leaders of those groups and with my peers, talking about my sexual orientation and then just gradually hearing that that was something that could be healed. And I hadn't really heard that before. And that, I guess, everything came from this idea that I was broken or had sexual brokenness, that something had gone wrong in my childhood, which in hindsight was pretty offensive to my parents, to be honest. <laughs> Although there are many people, I guess, who are LGBTIQA+, who go through the conversion movement, who have had probably shocking childhoods in many ways. And so for them, that message, I guess, would be even more seductive. For me, though, I took it on. And in many ways, I became the director of my own conversion practices. Even though I had prayer ministry with pastors, I joined small groups that would pray with me and talk with me about my sexual orientation and went to a couple of camps, went to conferences, was part of a couple of small conversion programs. Despite the fact that there were people leading those groups, in many ways, I was really the director of my own, my own process. And that is very common for people who go through conversion practices. I'm Ro. Where do I start? I was born way back in 1970 into a very evangelical, Christian, infamous Sydney Anglican environment, which is an interesting experience. Yeah, so for me, can, my conversion practices were, they were not formal. They were very informal, but, but also very very intense. I came, I had a little coming out moment when I was about somewhere between three and five with my parents, which was a little bit like getting dressed up into mum's clothes and announcing myself with a big surprise. Needless to say, that didn't go down too well to a um, very staunch evangelical family that were very much about, uh, very rule driven, very much that kind of, these are the things you do in order to be right with God, whatever that means, and is very much about, they use that term, um, working out your salvation, which is very much, in that environment, was very much, there's, um, there's long lists of things that you do do, and even longer lists of things that you don't do. And so that experience, I was greeted with a very much, a, oh no, this is no good, this is not happening. I was beaten by my father about it, which... In my experience, it was a very common experience to have that happen anyway. Um, my father was quite violent, but that was their response. Initial response was, I'm all beat it out of them. When that didn't work, it continually ramped up in ways that were, you know, discussions with pastors, discussions with youth workers, discussions with whoever they could find, ensuring that any groups that I was involved in were groups that maintained the message of cisgender, straight, heteronormativity and anything that was a divergence from that was just not acceptable, just not okay. Yeah, uh, my name's Katisha or Tish and I am currently studying a Masters of Divinity 
uh, which is just a fancy word for theological studies or reading a lot of the Bible and discussing it a lot. And mostly I really enjoy that. I grew up in a Christian family like a lot of us. My dad's a lovely, lovely Baptist pastor. So I'm what we call a PK or pastor's kid. So the church was maybe one of the first places that I felt really comfortable. Like I loved growing up in the church. It's not everyone's experience and I recognize that I'm really lucky to have that experience. But for me, it was an incredible intergenerational community. Uh, There was a lot of people of all different ages that I got to hang out with and know well that were like family. You know, the people that bring you casseroles when you're sick. Uh, you know, you make clay Bible figurines. I knew where all the best bickies were. We'd often like swing by the church and visit dad on the way home from school. So that's kind of how I like got into the Christian community is that it was just kind of what I lived and breathed. So I didn't really think about it. It's very familiar to me in a lot of ways. And in terms of the sort of conversion practices, it's kind of sometimes impossible to separate it out from a lot of Christian communities, unfortunately. So I never really thought about it, but like, Things like there just were never any gay people that I knew of. It was kind of a taboo topic. It wouldn't often come up. And if it did, it was never really anything positive. So my church was growing up was what we would now call welcoming. So to explain the difference between welcoming and affirming, welcoming churches are ones that uh, they say like, hey, we welcome everyone. Everyone is welcome to attend here, which sounds absolutely fabulous. And in many ways it kind of is. But actually often queer people, when they're really involved, realize that actually I'm only welcome to a point. I'm not welcome to do certain ministries. I certainly wouldn't be welcome to preach up at the front in most welcoming churches. You know, they might let me do certain things like maybe collect offering or they'd certainly take my offerings, but they probably wouldn't let me say like look after the kids or do certain things like that. So that's welcoming churches. Like you're so welcome to attend. You're so welcome to give money. Maybe you're welcome to help them serve morning tea. Maybe you're welcome to do certain things, but you're certainly not welcome to hold a leadership position or do things that any other like you know, cis heterosexual member of the congregation could do. And there's still that underlying thing that you're not as good as the rest of them and that you're more broken than the rest of them. And it's actually kind of almost more harmful, I think, sometimes than non-affirming communities because it's not as clear. So you feel a lot more welcome and you're like, oh, but I'm really welcome and loved here. So it's a lot harder for people to leave welcoming congregations or to challenge them or to feel like there's anything actually wrong with them because you're like, oh, otherwise I'm really welcome and appreciated. They love my biscuits. Um, but sort of not considering as much actually, hang on, I'm still really internalizing these messages that I can't do all these other things and that I'm still broken and that I'm still lesser and I'm sinful. And that is an incredibly difficult thing to internalize. So growing up, that's kind of what I internalized was the idea that I was kind of broken and lesser and that gay was something that you should not be. My name is Abinub. I mean, you can call me Abba like the band without the singing. I'm the founder of Kumeka, which is queer Middle Eastern and African Christians in Australia. I'm an Orthodox Christian, a Coptic Christian, and that part of the world, queer people don't really exist as such. And so the idea of trying to cure oneself from a phase, so to speak, uh, happened. And the parish priest at the time said, you know, I know somebody that can help in that situation. And people have kind of been successful before. And he recommended me uh, to a senior psychiatrist, basically. Most of it was kind of the mind's kind of therapy, kind of confusing, tangling you in a sense. That was basically most of it. There was no, you know, like, electrotherapy or that kind of stuff but the concept behind it was you're broken there's something wrong with you you need to be healed this is not natural doesn't exist in animals it's not god's plan 
and the mind is malleable, like an elastic string, you just have to reshape it and it'll be fixed. Uh, how did it affect me? Well, it's been five years since this happened. It went on for a year and a half, twice weekly in the evenings with a senior psychiatrist. And the trauma is very much alive as if it was yesterday. Depression, suicide, attempts, anxiety, uh, fear of oneself, being excluded from a community. Because once you come out as gay and you belong in a closed ethnic Christian community, you're naturally excluded from that place. So your belonging identity is completely removed. The The concept is that you're forced to pick between faith or sexuality and yourself or your family, and neither of them are very pleasant choices as such. Part of the way, part of the journey involved uh, three or four years of counselling with a, you know, a paid counsellor that was part of a, a private counselling organisation, a business, but it was based out of a church. And what you will find is that a lot of those um, a lot of counsellors who did sort of administer ex-gay or conversion practices did tend to work in counselling organisations that you might call Christian counselling organisations, and often they were attached to churches. Even if you didn't know that, there would usually be some sort of church involved or connected or they'd be co-located. I'm not aware of many of those existing at the moment, but certainly for me that was, that was the case. Um, I probably saw the counsellor once a fortnight for that period, uh, in that time, the counsellor helped me deal with a lot of my you know, issues that I'd been through in my life, a lot of the trauma of growing up and being bullied for being gay. So some of it was helpful, and I think that's one of the difficult things, is a lot of people that go through conversion practices have a bit of an attachment and a sense of nostalgia, because in many ways they experienced a sense of warmth, comfort and welcome from some of those um, those communities. But ultimately, the thought that was in my mind all the way through and the theme that we constantly came back to in my counselling was to do with my childhood and my upbringing. And clearly there was the narrative, and it was expressed by the counsellor at several points, that you know he knew many people who were LGBTIQ who had, had recovered or been healed of being, being um, same-sex attracted or trans. When we walk into the door of a faith community, we don't know whether that place is one that has evolved and is affirming of queer people or whether that's a place that is going to send us a message that you're broken and you need to be, you need to be fixed. So we're going to pretend to love you, say that we love you, say that we welcome you, but all the while in the background, we're going to be praying for you and um, sending you a message of how you can become ex-gay or ex-trans because that's the only way that you can genuinely be right with God and have a genuine relationship and um, very much there's a very lot very strong narrative around being queer is a choice that you've made not not an innate part of who you are which allows them to run that narrative then of you're broken and you need to be fixed because if it's a choice then we don't have to face up to the fact that this is an innate part of who we who a person is and if we don't have to face up to that then we don't have to actually change what we're doing and and actually accept people for who they are so there's very much that narrative of and and it's an ideology you're broken you need to be fixed which it kind of dovetails out into not only are you broken but you're a sinner and you're going to hell because you're in this perpetual state of doing the wrong thing in our view yeah, so I never went through formalized conversion therapy, but I certainly was uh, impacted by sort of the conversion movement as a whole. So I never thought I could be gay because I was a good Christian girl and I was like, well, it just doesn't happen to Christians. 
like me, which was incredibly naive and I got what was coming to me. So it took me a really long time to realise that I was gay and speaking to a lot of women as well, it's really encouraged for a lot of like women and girls in the church to not be particularly sexual as well, to not really embrace your sexuality. Like it's really good if you're not attracted to men and it's kind of what's expected. So I thought I was nailing it. I was like, oh my goodness, so holy, not attracted, not lusting after the boys, doing a great job. So it wasn't really until my late teens that I was like, hang on a second. I'm not lasting after the boys, not because like Jesus has the perfect man that one day I'll magically be attracted to, but actually because I'm a bit gay. And so uh, it took me a while to come to terms with that. And part of, I guess, the conversion practices was that I did try to pray the gay away like a lot of people, but I never really told anyone until my theology later changed to affirming. But um, yeah, like a lot of people, I just tried to pray it away. I tried to... Yeah, hope it would change. I thought I would remain single for life or at least celibate. Like I thought I would never marry. I thought I would be like a Baptist nun was kind of my like late high school plan. Yeah, because I just I couldn't see a future marrying a man and I couldn't also see a future telling anyone that I was gay. So I was just like single or changing. I thought that they were my only two options. Yeah. And if we look culturally, say, for example, at what anyone from the Middle East to Africa would say the idea of shame is connected, the idea of family is connected. So it's not just about what happens to me as an individual, it's about what happens to my parents, my you know, my two younger brothers, for example. Do they get disassociated from their group of friends and their social group because I'm gay? Is that a fair and reasonable thing? Of course not. I mean, I was saying this to someone the other day. I mean, if I went if I was, say, a Roman Catholic or a Protestant of some degree, I went down to St. Peter's down the road. I didn't like that. It was uncomfortable. I would just go to St. Paul's a few blocks down. No one knows who I am. But you can't do that in an Orthodox environment because everyone knows everybody. Everyone's in each other's pockets because it's a very close-knit community. So if you then identify as queer or other, then you're pretty much in for a hell ride. <laughs> um... I think awful is a bit of an under-descriptor. I think traumatizing, anxious, unfair, tortuous is probably better words. You're listening to QR Code, a queer health series that explores diverse and intersecting community issues. In this episode, we explore how conversion practices and ideology can be linked to the current religious freedom and discrimination debate in Australia including the federal government's proposed religious discrimination legislation. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I um, spent a bit of time going through the legislation, and it's, it's horrendous in short. But I think there's, there's a couple of things. One of the things is this kind of nebulous idea of protecting people to making a statement of belief in good faith. Whatever that actually means is really undefinable. So there's a question about, well, what's actually a core tenet of faith and how do you actually say what is and what isn't? I mean, we have so many denominations within, within Christendom because they can't agree what their core tenets are anyway. So that I think that's one side of it, which makes it really easy, I think, for someone to turn around and say, oh, well, it's my 
it's a tenet of my belief and I'm making the statement that this person is broken because they're trans and they need to be fixed. That's a statement of belief. And so I can't be held accountable for that because I'm making that statement in good faith. I have religious freedom to make that statement. So that's one thing. The other thing in the legislation, which is quite alarming, is some of the clauses around the, the registering of practitioners and things like that, which will what would happen would mean that you could have someone providing conversion practices in a professional manner at the same time being registered by a board and that registration could be not be able to be removed by a registering body on the basis of those practices because they could claim that it was a statement of that was part of their faith and so um it's a bit nebulous how that will actually if that clause was those clauses were to be included in a final legislation, how that would actually work. Yeah, I think it's important to connect the two. I think the religious freedom debate as like a queer person and a person of faith has been really interesting because I think often what's not talked about is actually like our freedom to have religion and to be able to practice that safely and to literally be able to live because like sometimes queer people are dying because of the way that people practice their faith and because of the harm done to us and our mental health is a lot worse so I think that that's a somewhat harsh thing to say but actually a reality that I don't ever see in the debates is people caring about the queer people and people actually marginalized by those in Christian communities which is not just the queer community so I think it's important to connect it in that way and think about queer people's freedoms to practice their religion as well and then I also think it's important when looking at the current religious freedom debate is to look at the language that used, which is really interesting, which is actually like a specific sect of Christianity. And it's like that kind of, and it is the ones who often would practice things like the conversion movement and are wanting permission to practice that. And it's very evangelical, conservative Christian language. It's not actually the majority of Christians in Australia. The language that's used is like a very specific brand. And I think a lot of people are missing that. Yeah, they're really actually wanting to protect and even enshrine, I'd say, a particular brand of Christianity in the religious freedom debates. You're listening to QR Code, exploring conversion practices and ideology. We also explore the question, should governments in Australia ban conversion practices? I think that the word ban is an interesting word. In other parts of the world, uh, you've seen legislation that uses this language of banning gay conversion therapy. I think each of those words needs to be challenged. So we talk about banning. It's very hard to ban something in this way. I think there needs to be legislation that actually includes a package of responses, including addressing advertising, uh, transmitting the ideology, which in many ways I think is really a form of vilification because if you openly declare that queer people are broken, then that's a vilifying sort of claim. There needs to be protections for children in school. There needs to be clearer definition around what constitutes pastoral care. There are so many relationships in this country that come through religious communities, professional bodies, and even workplaces that are labelled as pastoral care, but still have a power dynamic and the ability to cause harm. In terms of uh, banning formal practitioners, so psychologists and psychiatrists, they are already effectively banned from administering conversion practices, particularly through APRA and their regulating bodies. Counselling organisations, well, counselling is not regulated in, in Australia in the same way that psychology and psychiatry is. But at the same time, if you claim that you're going to be able to change someone's sexual orientation or gender identity and then charge money for that, 
you know, then you're really being fraudulent. So I think addressing that through legislative measures that address therapeutic fraud is probably helpful. And then we also want to see a public health campaign so that some of those large queer health organisations around Australia can really get stuck into challenging this messaging that people are broken. That word broken is not a term that has any credence in any professional sort of allied health body in Australia, yet it's language that just proliferates throughout many religious communities. It's a very tricky one. I was uh, last week. I was speaking to the state government, and I was, they were consulting myself on on behalf of QMaker about this. And the difficulty is this: How do we ban something that will a go underground and b that doesn't impinge on religious freedoms? Because the last thing you want to do is to give people extra fuel for this. They say, "Look, you know, the queer people are trying to take away our religious freedoms. It doesn't help anyone." And the second thing is, if they change the coding of this conversion practice to we'll just pray over you or we're doing a spiritual help, then it becomes almost near as impossible to ban, so to speak. So I think the narrative needs to change in the sense of this is corrupt theology, a theology that teaches that man is broken because he has no control over his sexuality. That needs to be changed. Because we can change the conversion practice, we can ban it, but unless we get to the root problem, which is corrupt theology which is bad cultural influences classified as religion, then we're not going to get anywhere. I would say that, yes, we need to ban, like, formalised conversion therapies, you know, particularly anything to do with sort of psychology, counselling, minors, things like, you know, people being forced to travel overseas to undergo conversion therapies, all of that sort of stuff. But I'd say that that's kind of some of the extreme stuff and actually isn't what damages a lot of us. Like, I never went through it. And I'm still undergoing counselling years later because I'm still unpacking all of the things that I internalise. Like you soak in it for years. And those messages are far more pervasive and are widespread in, I'd say, most churches throughout the country. And so I think we need to actually consider things like education, things like actually making people aware of what's going on, the the impact of their messages I think storytelling is incredibly powerful and that's something that you can't legislate. So I think we've got to think sort of broader than just legislation about these issues because I actually don't think that that will actually reach into churches. And sometimes Christians, we have a tendency, all of the stories that we grew up with, the heroes are kind of persecuted. Like you look at Jesus, you even look at like David and Goliath, like, oh, he's facing off a Goliath. So we love the narrative that we too are persecuted. We have a bit of a persecution complex. So I think sometimes we also have to be careful in these debates in being aware of Christian's persecution complex and sort of taking that into consideration. Because when it's just sort of blatantly attacking rather than I think storytelling and broader and engaging with people at where they're at, uh, people go, oh, you're against Christians and it's happening so much in the religious freedom debate. And they go, oh, you're attacking Christians, you're attacking us. But actually, it's actually just, you know, a fair discussion. But we love to think we're persecuted sometimes because that's all the heroes in our stories. You've been listening to QR Code. QR Code is a queer health series produced at community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia on unceded Wurundjeri land. To download our episodes, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash QR Code. Thank you to the Community Radio Network for getting the series out to you and the City of Yarra for their financial support. For more information about queer conversion practices and ideology from survivors' perspectives, go to the Brave Network on your search engine. 
If this episode has caused you distress, you may wish to contact Q Life on 1800 184 527 or Lifeline on 13 11 14. Links will be published on our webpage. Our theme music is Ritual for Transformation by Michaeli Deschel. My name's James McKenzie. Thanks for listening. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.